This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 92. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Todd Wenning, senior analyst at Ensemble Capital. I first became aware of Todd when I found his profile on Twitter, and he had this Venn diagram outlining his investment philosophy pinned to his page. I thought to myself, I got to interview him to learn more about how and why Todd constructed his philosophy and condense his strategy into this one pager. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 92, and please enjoy my interview with Todd Wenning from Ensemble Capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. As some of you may know, when I'm not interviewing folks for the podcast, I also host CEO video interviews and Wall Street views with investing experts for SNN's YouTube channel, SNN Network. I wanted to take a moment to invite you all to subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel. As a subscriber, you'll be the first to be notified when we publish a new CEO video interview with microcap management teams, a new Wall Street View video interview with investing experts, panels and keynote presentations from our conferences, as well as new and archived podcast interviews. Go to www.youtube.com backslash SNNWire and click the subscribe button. Again, that's www.youtube.com backslash SNNWire and click subscribe. Thank you for subscribing and for your continued support. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I would like to welcome Todd Wenning, Senior Analyst at Ensemble Capital. Todd? Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. And, uh, you know, the, the reason I invited you on today is, uh, you know, I, I, your tag tweet has been up there for a while. The one with your uh, management moat price uh, Venn diagram, you know, and uh, I really do appreciate you coming on and, and uh, sharing your, your views with me today. Uh, but, but first, how, how are we doing? Or, you know, this is an early morning interview for us over here. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's good. You know, got my cup of coffee, feeling pretty good. Good, man. Good. Well, uh, you know, I do again, appreciate you coming on. Uh, so, so let's get started here, you know, with your background, how'd you get your start, uh, in the world of finance and investing? Uh, it was probably, it's, you know, it's pretty non-traditional. Uh, I was a history major in, in college and, um, I was a minor in econ, but you know, most of my Work was kind of macro, micro stuff. Never really got into any of the finance stuff. Um, and so I graduated and really didn't know what to do, And uh, as most history majors run into. And so I was looking 
um, to be a paralegal or start in my career in law. And um, I graduated from St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. And uh, somebody mentioned, hey, you know, you should look at look at Vanguard. Um, you know, they're out in, in Valley Forge, you know, not too far from from where uh, St. Joe's is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as an undergraduate, I had uh, done four years in the admissions office, giving tours, um, calling prospective students and giving them a student's opinion. So I had a lot of you know, phone experience and kind of presentation experience. And uh, so Vanguard was looking to hire registra- registered representatives, um, to, you know, to basically to take phone calls uh, about the mutual funds. And, you know, they were like, hey, you know, you have a good GPA and uh, you know how to work at the phone. So, you know, we think we can teach you how to do the finance stuff. And so, you know, from day one, I got super lucky. And, um, you know, I had a choice going between law and finance. And I thought, well, I'll go to Vanguard for a couple of years and learn how to invest. And, you know, I'll I'll go back to law school and at least I'll know how to run my 401k. (laughs) And uh, so that that, that was the original process. And then I just, I got hooked. You know, there's no better profession, in my opinion, uh, for a liberal arts major than the investing world. Just so many strings to pull, so many things to tie together. And um, I've, I've found that my liberal arts background has actually helped me exceedingly well and as a further along I got in my career you know initially it's hard to break into the industry when you have a history degree um, and you have to get kind of lucky as I did with um, you know finding a firm like Vanguard that you know is an education type of firm you know they mm-hmm. want to teach and they want to learn and so I got very lucky you know starting at, at Vanguard I couldn't I didn't know at the time but I couldn't have started at a better place you know laying a great foundation for not just how to invest but how to do it the right way and, mm-hmm. and how to um, do things ethically and how to do things the right you know, right way and how to focus on the on the customer first um, and really understanding why you're doing what you're doing in the first place. So um, couldn't have been there. Uh, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't have been luckier than starting my career there. Well, it's, um, it's, it's sorry not to cut you up, but yeah. you know, with it's interesting because I kind of had a similar path in the sense that, you know, I when I was in undergrad, I went from philosophy to communications to I, you know, I, I, I went through various different liberal arts pathways, you know, mm-hmm. where I, I should have just stuck with math and physics because I, I really <laughs> did love that. But but the funny thing is, is that I, I can relate a lot to what you're saying, because, you know, when it comes to that liberal arts degree and investing, I mean, you're talking, I mean, and this is especially true since starting this podcast, is that there's so much philosophy involved. There's so much storytelling involved as well. That's especially in microcaps, um, but uh, you know, just th- there's so many things that those tools that you learn just from the uh, using the tools for critical thinking, right? I mean, it, wouldn't right. you say? Absolutely, and you know, you think I think most people, um, especially you know, young people and people who aren't familiar with investing, think it's all math. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to understand math, you have to understand accounting. But, um, you know, I, I always surprise people when I say, you know, the most advanced math I do, I've ever done in my career is algebra. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never done trigonometry, never done calculus. never. And maybe there's maybe there are people in the field who do do that. But there is it's I've never found necessary to do more than algebra. And, you know, I'll talk to groups of young students and they'll just their eyes will light up like, really? All you need is algebra. Um, and it's, it's, it's basic math, but you know, it's, you start, you know, when it comes down to, you know, long-term investing, um, it becomes more qualitative, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about, 
um, okay, you know, how do I take different pieces of information? You know, Charlie Munger talks about mental models, mm-hmm. um, and you have to have different disciplines to pull from to really get insights that you need if you hope to generate alpha. Right. So, so then, Todd. So, so you're at Vanguard. Sorry, not to do the quick diversion back, but you know, yeah. I, I want to know how you got to Ensemble Capital. So, you know, you go to Vanguard. Did you were you at some place in between before you got to Ensemble, or you know, what was the genesis there? Yeah, I, you know, the first ten years of my career, um, I moved around quite a bit, and um, and and it was it was a great, you know, like to me that was my MBA, like my mm-hmm. first ten years, you know, really jumping around and. And learning from every firm that I work for. So I, I worked for Vanguard for two years. I started in the mutual fund side and then went to the brokerage side, um, did my Series 7 and all that fun stuff. Um, and then my, 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 my future wife um, lived in Virginia. And so we uh, decided to move down that way to D.C. area. And I uh, found a job working at SunTrust Asset Management um, in DC, um, had a pretty sweet location right across from the white house. And, um, cool. that was, that was a really, really cool period, uh, for no other reason than that location. Um, but I did that for about a year. Um, I was helping some portfolio managers manage, um, high net worth portfolios. And I, I got lucky again, uh, working under some portfolio managers who uh, were also individual stock pickers and, uh, they really helped, you know, get me started in the individual investing side. Um, and then, uh, as luck would have it, I lived down the street from The Motley Fool, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a big uh, financial uh, publication sure. website uh, that, you know, people from outside the U.S. may may or may not know. Um, but so I worked there for, I think it was six years total. Um, and they, you know, again, talk about companies that are all about learning and education. Um, you know, Motley Fool is, is right up there. And they, you know, I was about 25 when I started at Motley Fool. And, you know, they really gave me the keys to the car and said, you know, we want you to write for the site. We want you to edit. We want you to, um, you know, engage with our members. And I really didn't, even though I had my Series 7, I didn't really know anything about investing. Um, you know, real investing, real, like, long-term business-focused investing. And mm. so, you know, that was really where my learning accelerated in, in investing research. And that's because, you know, you, you write for, you know, Motley Fool has a huge audience. Um, and so to write publicly um, and put yourself out there, you have to really think about what you're writing, mm-hmm. uh, really know what you're writing. And when you do put stuff out there, you get feedback from people all over the world who are a lot smarter than you are. Mm-hmm. And so it was, a, you know, a great way for me to, you know, really accelerate my learning process. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, no better way to to learn a skill than to have to sit and write about it, and put it out there publicly. Um, and so I, I worked for Motley Fool, uh, wrote for them, eventually started working on some newsletters. Um, I worked on Motley Fool Pro with uh, my good friend, Jeff Fisher, who um, uh, has done a tremendous, he, he's one of the most talented investors that nobody's well, I shouldn't say nobody's heard of, but there's plenty of Motley Fool members who know exactly who Jeff Fisher is. But, you know, in terms of like the, the broader national scene, you know, Jeff is a tremendous investor. Um, and, um, you know, he's, uh, he's a great friend of mine. Um, and so we, so Jeff came back to the Motley Fool, started this newsletter in, we started in October of 2008. Mm-hmm. And we had a million dollars cash mm-hmm. to work with. And, and it was like the best time you know, to be an investor with cash, mm-hmm. um, you know, right, right after the, during the financial crisis, we could, you know, I had some tremendous bargains and, um, you know, we did, we did pretty well, um, considering, 
you know, where we were in the market at that time. And, um, you know, so then I moved over to uh, the UK. I worked in London for a year uh, running a, a Molly Thole newsletter focused on dividend investing. Um, so I did that for a year and then uh, went to Morningstar, where I was a sell-side analyst for three and a half years. Um, you know, I loved my, my position at The Motley Fool, but I really wanted to move into more of an institutional side of the business, mm -hmm. um, institutional research. And, you know, to get and get to the sell side, you know, it's really kind of throwing you into the fire and um, going as deep as you can um, into individual companies. And that's really where, um, you know, you can build a lot of experience. So that's, you know, I, and Morningstar was another, you know, talk again, talk about an educational place. Um, you know, I've been very lucky to work for, you know, three firms that were super educational, you know, Vanguard, uh, Motley Fool and, and Morningstar. And, um, and that, that's really where, you know, things kind of took off. And then, uh, I, and again, I told you I had to, I jumped around a little bit. Uh, so I, at, I mean, I, I feel like the interview, I just want to do your background right now. It's so fast. It's <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess I, you know, like, again, I, I, I kind of had to, you know, being a liberal arts major, sure. uh, you, know, you know, trying to you know, find my way around, you know, I've been just about every part of the, of the finance field, mm -hmm. um, and got very fortunate to do all that. Um, but you know, my, at, um, at, at Morningstar, um, I worked on. Um, I was the lead uh, for the equity stewardship methodology. So mm -hmm. we focused on how management teams allocate capital, um, and got to work on on their book, which was super awesome. You know, at the time, just you know, I wrote a chapter for uh, the book Why Moats Matter mm -hmm. um, on on management, and that was quite a treat um, to be able to do that. Um, and, uh, then I, you know, we had our, our first child, um, and we wanted to live close to family. And, uh, so I got a job in my hometown of Cincinnati working for a large independent, uh, RIA, uh, Johnson investment council, a wonderful firm here in town. And, uh, and so I did that for, I think it was like three years. And so, uh, Sean and I had an ensemble, um, had been in conversation for quite a couple, you know, probably a couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. just, we knew each other from financial Twitter, um, the blogs and, you know, um, Sean was looking to add a new analyst to the team mm -hmm. and, uh, they're based in San Francisco and I'm in Cincinnati. And, uh, and, and so we you know, worked in an arrangement where I work remotely from Ohio, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, contribute, to the team in San Francisco, and it's it's amazing how seamless it is in terms of um, the technology and um, you know knowing my teammates and you know it's a it's a great great situation. So um, I'm very fortunate. Again, just my whole career seems to be like you know one thing fortunate after another, and I've been yeah. very lucky. And so I like to give back as much as I can. Awesome. Well, by the way, does Sean know uh, you know that uh, you know it's it's a three to six year time frame that he's got you? You know, so so we got to capitalize now. You know, I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I I, I uh, I'm I'm really focused on on this uh, this team. You know, we have um, this is by far the best philosophy fit. I've ever worked with, mm -hmm. um, you know, I have a great working relationship with the team. You know, Sean is, um, not only a super, super smart guy, but you know, one of the nicest guys you'll meet too. Mm -hmm. Um, he's a great, great boss. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying my time. Oh, that's, I mean, listen, I, I we had Sean on the podcast in uh, episode 78 and I, I couldn't agree more, you know, it was so much fun yeah. talking with him and learning more about the, 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 the ensemble capital philosophy. And, you know, before, before I get into my, my, my question or my next, you know, my, you know, I write up a lot of questions before each interview, you know, that I want to go through, but, you know, to, to quickly follow up here, 
you know, a lot of my, uh, a lot of interviews I've had on here can definitely relate to your experience that you had at, at the Motley Fool where, you know, you, you were writing and putting your thoughts out publicly and not only just for, to, to put it out there, I mean, well, you were getting paid to do it, but you know, most of these guys just had individual blogs and they were just doing it for their own personal development. But you know, what, what was that experience like? You know, I mean, did, did you have to teach yourself how to be able to take criticism well? And, and then how did you, um, morph some of what you learned into your, uh, into your investing philosophy? Yeah, so one of the, the real nice things about working for The Motley Fool was, um, you know, when I wrote, I was writing in support of a lot of different newsletters. So we had a high-growth newsletter, um, an income-focused newsletter, a small-cap newsletter. Um, and so I got to kind of dive deep into the philosophies around each of those strategies. And that helped me kind of formulate what felt most comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. Um you know, our, our high growth strategy was buying biotechs and, and it was super exciting, but I just didn't really resonate with me in terms mm-hmm. of it wasn't my, my style. I was more of a, of a value, um, smaller cap, um, you know, dividend type of investor. And so it just, that, that sort of strategy fit me, fit me more uh, nicely. And so I found myself writing more and more about those topics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, just, just finding my way, you know, and, and, you know, the, uh, Motley Fool, you know, was the first introduced me to uh, Warren Buffett, um, Charlie Munger. And so, you know, just that natural progression that a lot of investors have just, mm-hmm. you know, that was where I got started. And so just like everything just started clicking. Would and, you, and would, would, would you say that that experience really accelerated your growth? Cause you know, you've held a lot of different jobs and before coming to Ensemble Capital, you know, where, mm-hmm. what would you say, which job? accelerated your growth the fastest oh really i mean the molly fool no question i mean i went from yeah. from amateur to professional at the molly fool mm-hmm. um and that's the biggest leap i mean i i, I will say that you know i've learned everywhere that i've worked um in and working with with sean just that ensemble um you know i've you know them being out in california near silicon valley and me being mid, more midwestern you know we have a, a great cognitive diversity you know mm-hmm. i've learned a ton from them about growth investing, um, mm-hmm. you know, software and technology. Uh, whereas, you know, I, I try to provide more of a, you know, middle of America type approach, you know, like will this product work in the middle of America? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a great learning environment. Um, and the other, um, other, other colleague on the team, Arif is tremendously bright and, you know, so, uh, smart about technology and worked in the field. And so I, I just, I just sit back and listen to those guys talk and, and keep learning. So, like I said, there's no better no better field um, for a learner than the investment field. Cool, very very cool. All right, so now that we got we have a framework of your background, everybody now knows. You know, if they didn't know you before, now they know fully who you are. So with that, you know, uh, as I said at the beginning of this episode, is the the main reason that inspired me to have you on was your one pager of your investment philosophy that you have uh, tagged on your Twitter page. I, I recommend everybody go and check that out and uh, actually pull it up if you want to follow along with the interview because we're going to be following that. Um, and it's this uh, it, it's a three-circle Venn diagram where you have moat, management, and price in the main circles. And then at the in the very middle, strong buy and and a couple other things that, that are on this. So before we get, you know, really dive deep into it, you know, why, why did you decide to put this together and then publish it publicly? Sure. I was working for my, my previous firm when I put this together. Um, 
And I just got to the point in my career where I had a lot of things floating around and just in my head, like, okay, this is how I typically think about things. And I just wanted to have something more concrete, something I could just put in front of my desk and just remind myself what I, what I'm focused on. Um, and I don't remember what the inspiration was, but it just the Venn diagram was where it, where it came out. Um, and things just kind of fell into place and, and, you know, and on, on financial Twitter, there's a, a great, um, tradition of sharing mm-hmm. and um, I'm, the, I'm a big believer in, in, in sharing and not like holding anything personal like or keeping it to myself. Um, you know, I like to, to share what I'm learning and what I'm thinking, what I'm doing. Um, because I, I've, I've, I've gotten so much return on that over the years, mm-hmm. um, you know, from people just, you know, saying, Hey, I think about things the same way, or maybe you're a little, a little, a little wrong. Let me tell you why I think you're wrong. And, um, so I, I find just so much benefit in sharing, um, my thoughts. And so, you know, when I put that together, I, you know, was like, eh, maybe I'll just put it on the internet and I put it up, I think at like 11 o'clock at night <laughs> and in the morning I woke up to all these all these, uh, you know, notifications that, you know, people have been liking it and re- replying. And so I was like, wow, that really did catch mm-hmm. on. I didn't expect it, but there you go. I mean, did you, would you say this is equivalent to like your, your Munger type checklist? You know, I was just reading about that in a, another book I've been reading. So. Yeah. And I think it's, it's more of just, you know, when I'm looking at companies, you know, there's so many companies right. to look at thousands and thousands and, you know, we need to narrow it down somehow. And, um, you know, the best thing you can do, uh, is to, once you start looking at a company, as soon as you start recognizing that it's not, not a fit and it could be still a great company, just doesn't fit your approach. It's best to pass on it. I mean, it's sometimes you, you, you can't understand how the business works and you can spin your wheels, spin your wheels and you still won't know how it works. And it's just, you know, your your time is precious, Mm -hmm. especially as, as you get later on in your career and, and, you know, family and other obligations, um, you need to make the most of your time. And so, you know, to be able to focus in on a certain type of company, um, you know, really is, it, it helps you, um, you know, really strength, focus on where your strengths are. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a great time save. Cool. All right. So let's dig in here. So the first uh, circle that I want to uh, get into is moats. And mm-hmm. uh, in doing my due diligence for the interview, as, as well as, you know, what you've said on here, you know, that... You've been you've been interviewed quite a bit on this topic, and uh, you know as we found out is you wrote a chapter in Why Moats Matter, <laughs> so yeah. you you happen to you know a great deal about this space so or, or this 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 topic. So let let's start by breaking this down. You know what what does this mean to you, and and how did you break it down into the various subcategories? Yeah, so from you know the, going back to the classic Warren Buffett explanation, it, he coined the phrase, and he does it better than anybody else at explaining what it is. And, you know, basically it's, you know, if you have an advantage as a business, if you have a castle in capitalism, people are going to try to attack it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in, if in a perfectly competitive environment, you know, if you have a new hot product, it's going to get competed away right away. And so any initial gains you have is going to be, are going to be, uh, whittled away by, by new entrants in the market. So in order to protect those high returns, you need to, have a durable competitive advantage, a structural advantage, something somebody else can't just do. Uh, and that's, that helps you generate high returns on invested capital. Um, and when you have high returns on invested capital, you, you can generate a lot more cash flow per unit of growth. You know, So a firm that has 10% return on invested capital is growing at 10%, has to return, has to reinvest all their cash just to keep growing it at 10%. 
you know, but a firm generating 20% returns on invested capital only has to reinvest half of their cash flow to get the same level of growth and they can distribute the rest. And that makes those companies much more valuable. So focusing on those durable competitive advantages is, is critical in my opinion, to look for, you know, looking for businesses, um, you know, and so thinking about, you know, what different buckets, um, competitive advantages or economic most can fall into, um, you know, I really go back to, you know, the Morningstar philosophy and, you know, they have five buckets. Um, I only put four on here cause I think one is, one is debatable, but, um, and I'll get into that, but, um, you know, there's intangible assets, things like patents, trademarks, um, brands, then network effects, uh, switching costs and low cost operations. Um, and then the fifth one is efficient scale. And that, that, that's basically talking about like a rational oligopoly, um, mm-hmm. and, and, short. And, you know, the idea that, um, you know, a, an additional entrant into the market will drive down returns on invested capital for the entire industry to the point where it's no longer attractive. And so that's kind of like, um, you know, it's, it's debatable, um, on, on that point, but you know, I, it's it's the weakest of the five, so I didn't put it on there on my on my spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. So how would you? And I want to I want to ask more about a couple of these on here. But how would you say like uh, niche niche markets? You know, domination in a niche market. How how would you say that fits into this moat model? Well, I think um, niche markets, um, if you are, are, can be very difficult for um, larger companies mm-hmm. to get into. So if you think about you know, the two sides where you can be attacked from, from competitive standpoint are from above and from below. And so, you know, a lot of times you see these, these mega companies kind of going backwards and, and, um, and competing against smaller firms. And you really don't want to be on the wrong side of that because they've got a lot more resources um, Mm -hmm. at their disposal um, to, to kind of come into that niche. But a lot of times that niche isn't enough to move the needle for them. Mm-hmm. And so they, they avoid those businesses or they simply acquire the company. Mm-hmm. So, and so mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Sorry. I cut you off. No, I was just going to say, you know, that's, that's one reason I like, I like niches, especially boring niches you know, <laughs> where, you know, it's not, not, you know, going to make headlines and, and barons or something like that. It's, you know, going to fly under the radar and, and um, not attract a lot of attention. Cool. So then, so again, looking at your, at the model here, so how does it work for you? So you, you're, you're looking at a potential company, you see, okay, it might fall into one of these five categories, efficient scale, intangible assets, et cetera. You know, then do you go and ask the next question in the next two categories about like whether it's a legacy mode or reinvestment mode, or are those two separate bigger categories that you then consider? Well, yeah, I think, you know, thinking about legacy mode and reinvestment mode is, is thinking about what the return on incremental capital is. So when you have a legacy mode, you know, you think about, about firms with, you know, big brands, um, you think about um, consumer packaged goods companies, um, you know, Gillette is probably a classic legacy mode. Um, you know, most of, most of the assets are already in place. Um, and there's really not a lot of growth, reinvestment growth ahead. Um, and so those have to be viewed differently than a reinvestment mode where the firm has a large runway and for every dollar they, they put back in the business, they get a dollar fifty back. Mm-hmm. You know, those it. are the type of businesses that it's, it's, they're, they're completely different, um, you know, type of, of businesses. So I think it's critical to think about, you know, how, you know, and, and both can be great, both can be great and both can be bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think about like a legacy mode, 
you know, the, the downside there is they just let things slip. Um, you know, they kind of milk, milk the business for cash flow and let, uh, you know, insurgents kind of, you know, take the business from them slowly. You know, those are the ones you want to avoid. Uh, but there are other legacy moats that can endure for a very long time um, and, uh, and find a way to, to push back competition again and again. And so, you know, the, either one will work, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm always more concerned about legacy moats because there's a potential for, you know, bureaucracy and bloat and, um, you know, just milking the business for cash flow. Mm-hmm. So then for you, you know, what, what would you say, what, what potential moat is the most interesting to you? And do, do you have a ranking for these or, or do you look for companies that check as many of them off as possible? Yeah. So I, th- I think, you know, I've answered this before that, you know, intangible assets are the most interesting to me because they're more psychological. Mm-hmm. So you think about like luxury brands, um, you know, why does, um, you know, LVMH, uh, Louis Vuitton, um, you know, how are they able to charge huge markups um, for for items that, you know, should be selling for half the price that they're charged for? Um, it's all psychological, right? And so I think understanding, you know, like the Veblen goods, um, it, it's all, it, it's just extremely interesting to me because you have to understand human human nature. Um, so I think that's the the most interesting challenge in terms of thinking about thinking about moats um you know network effects are also taking a larger share of um, my interest in the past couple of years just thinking about platform businesses and, and how platform businesses are like an entirely different business model um from traditional businesses and how they require little capital and how you know once they hit scale it's just really hard to unseat them so think about I me. Mean, Facebook is a classic example of a network effect. You know, as each incremental person is added to the network, the network as a whole becomes more valuable. Um, and so I think that, and, but then you know, once that's been zippered up, it's really hard to unzipper it, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you know, if like you think about MySpace, and you could say MySpace had the same thing. Um, but you know, we, we can get into you know why that didn't work out. But you know, in MySpace basically didn't uh, curate. It's, it's network as well as Facebook did. So, um, but, but MySpace is an example of how once network effects fall apart, they fall apart really fast. Right. Um, like, you know, uh, so I think it's, it's important to be aware of that. And it's, um, but, you know, they're, but while they exist, they're extremely strong and right. can result in extremely high ROIC, mm-hmm. um, return on invested capital. Mm-hmm. And so you know, one of the things that you mentioned, you know, I, I do look for are situations where there's, more than one moat present. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, uh, a tweet that was going around maybe a couple of weeks ago showing how IBM has been awarded the most patents every year for over 20 years. And it's like, great, you know, they've got all these patents and that's pr- supposed to protect their, their um, you know, business and returns on invested capital and um, their moat. And, but that hasn't really translated to shareholders. And I think one of the reasons why is they're lacking something else, like a moat itself or a patent itself is not a moat. It has to also have something else, like a switching cost involved with it um, to really uh, generate high returns on invested capital. And, and Morningstar did a great research paper um, I forget when, but maybe it's fairly recently, mm-hmm. but showing that you know combinations of moat sources had the highest returns on invested capital. Um, so that's what we're really looking for: are you know network effects plus switching costs, or intangible assets plus switching costs, or something like that. That you know really makes the business extremely hard to crack. 
Perfect. That's a that's that's a good place to end the uh, on moats right there. You know, combination of moats. Or I'm, I want to highlight that. I want to make sure everyone heard that very clearly. So, um, so by the way, before I continue, you mentioned a few companies already. Uh, I think Gillette, Louis Vuitton, Facebook, MySpace, IBM. Uh, are you currently or were a shareholder in any of these? Uh, no, we do not own, and I personally don't own any of those companies. Perfect. Okay. So, next up management, um, another one of the big circles in the Venn diagram, you know, uh, as, as you're very well aware, you know, in the small micro nano cap world, uh, this might be the biggest circle of the Venn diagram, uh, as it's so vital to these companies success, you know, so then for you, what, what are your criteria and how do you tell that the management for a potential investment hits all that criteria? You know, it's, it, it takes, it's like, um, in short, it's pattern recognition, I think, is so critical. Um, you know, if you read enough about Warren Buffett's um, deputies at his various companies um, and, and you understand what he's looking for in managers, I say that's a really good start. Um, I wouldn't say that's the Bible to say, you know, that's the only way a, a great manager can exist. You know, it's one thing I've learned a lot about from working with Ensemble and Sean and Arif is that there's more than one successful type of manager. Um, I had always kind of had this Warren Buffett mindset of, you know, I'm looking for this like super cost conscious, you know, CEO who, you know, drives a 20 year old car and, you know, and, and really is, is saving money in the business. Um, and those CEOs can be great. No question about it. Um, but we've did, we've, we've separated it mentally into what we call visionaries and optimizers. And so optimizers are like your classic outsiders, like the book, The Outsiders. Um, outsider CEOs who you know, have this wonderful capital allocation framework. Um, there's a blueprint for success and they know how to nail it every time. Um, on the other hand, there's also visionary CEOs. And visionary CEOs are working towards a problem for which there is no blueprint. Mm-hmm. But they're nevertheless extremely talented, and they think about uh, reinvesting in the business completely differently. You think about like um, the early days of of Google. You know, they were you know throwing away, actually throwing away, but they were reinvesting money in like culture. And and so let me just say, we we do own Google in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, so we um, early stages they were you know, reinvesting in you know things like you know, scooters on campuses and you know, crazy things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, people look at that, you know, with a mindset of like a Warren Buffett CEO and go, that's just crazy. They're wasting all this money. But what they're really doing is they're, they're, they're creating, they're cultivating this culture of, of, of learning and fun. And um, that's how products get created as a byproduct of that environment. So um, I think it's just, and to come back to your to your question, I think it's it's really about you know finding managers who are focused on building an enduring franchise. I think that's probably the common theme, right, between outsider or um, optimizers and visionaries is they're all trying to build this enduring franchise. Um, and there's different ways to do that. And so I think it's just being open to um, you know finding. And it, it, it's rarer than you think, right? You know, it, so it's all about finding these CEOs and CFOs and, and management teams who are, are really creating this vibrant culture. Um, and it doesn't have to be like a Google culture. It can be a very different culture, a more um, you know, one focused on, on cost and efficiency. 
um, think, you know, Dan or her business system is a classic example um, of just efficiency and, and great optimization. And we do not own Dan or her. Um, but that's an example of another firm that, you know, has a culture that's not all scooters and flip flops and, um, <laughs> and, and, and how people think about, you know, these kind of crazy corporate cultures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, another thing that's interesting when it comes to management and, you know, you, you kind of bring this up too in, in your, in what you just said in your analysis is that it's more of an art than really a science. You know, you can do pattern recognition, you can kind of see some similarities and, you know, and, and kind of categorize visionaries and optimizers. But ultimately at the end of the day, you know, it's it, these same CEOs are reading the same books and seeing the same things that are helping these other businesses succeed. And yet maybe they don't have that same talent capacity or that same, uh, just, just those, some of those similar qualities that these other, uh, Titans of industry have had, you know, so how, in your experience, have you been able to discern between the, the pretenders and the real contenders? Well, that, that's always the, the million dollar question. <laughs> yeah. Right. And cause, because there are, there are people who, um, you know, read, read all the you know Warren Buffett things and say, oh, we should talk about moats. We should talk about this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really about spending time with management teams um, and with their employees over periods of time um, to see whether or not they're real or fake. Um, and that's not always super easy for an individual investor to do um, if you can't maybe afford to travel to headquarters or meet with meet with the CEO. Um, but I think there's ways to learn. Um, you can, uh, you know, a lot of times when a firm has a real cor- good corporate culture, um, they'll be written about in in local business newspapers. And, that, and to me, it's one great resource I think is constantly overlooked in the industry is local business papers, um, especially for smaller businesses. You know, they, they may not get profiled in barons, but their local business journal will, will write about them and how excited people are to work there. Um, and it's, it's reading, reading letters over time. It's getting all the information you possibly can and, and looking for things that surprise you. Um, if, and you can pretty, you can pretty much pick up when they're, when maybe the tune has changed. Um, it, it can be, uh, uh, you can say, well, wait a minute, you told, you said this last time and now you're changing your tone. And so you can start to, you can pick up on those things over time. But again, a lot of it's pattern recognition and it's not always hundred percent guaranteed that you're right. Um, but you have to go with, with what's you, what you know has worked in the past and you have to, you know, try to identify people that you can trust. Um, and you know, one of the frameworks I always talk about is, you know, would I trust this person to watch my, my dog for the weekend? Right. <laughs> uh, you know, would I, would I, would I trust him to, you know, um, stay at my, um, at my house, you know, for the weekend or something. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's, it, Looking for those type of people, um, uh, you can start to kind of uh, f- focus on on the ones that really resonate with you. Right, and and another major uh, point that you you highlight on on your your Venn diagram here, and and has I'm only saying this because it has multiple bullet points under it. You know, but uh, I, I I joke because uh, you know a lot on the podcast we cover this this main point, and that's uh, thoughtful capital allocation. You know, so for yeah. you, what what does this mean? You know, most, you know, just from my experience, um, you know, most management teams are not thoughtful capital, capital allocators. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
that's unfortunate. And, and, and you know, I mentioned Warren Buffett a couple times, but his quotes are just so good. It's kind of hard to ignore them. Um, but he <laughs> you know, talks about how, you know, most CEOs come up through the ranks in different disciplines like sales or marketing. And none of them are brought, I would say none of them, most are not brought up in with a capital allocation mindset. You know, they get into this job and all of a sudden they've got to think about buybacks and dividends and, you know, where to reinvest capital, um, because that's really what drives the business over the subsequent 5, 10, 15 years and beyond mm-hmm. is how you're investing the money today. And um, it's, it's not easy. And so I don't necessarily necessarily blame management teams for not knowing, but I try to avoid the ones that are, are kind of indifferent to it or don't really give it a lot of thought. You know, the ones that really stick out to me are the ones that um, say, you know, we are opportunistic with buybacks. You know, we will, you know, wait for our share price to be, you know, highly attractive and then we'll buy back eight, 10% of the company. Um, that's not a typical approach for most companies. You know, most companies that they do buybacks, they're saying, oh, well, you know, we'll, we're going to buy back $100 million a year every year. And that's not a terrible strategy, um, but it's not all that thoughtful. It's mm-hmm. just kind of dollar cost averaging. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and dividends, I think, really tell you how management thinks about capital allocation. Um, you, you know, I'm, I'm a, a very big believer in, in dividends, um, but dividends done in the right way. I think a lot of companies um, pay too much in dividends, um, especially now, uh, given the rapid innovation that we've, you know, we're seeing across the global marketplace. You know, a lot of the big... Uh, blue chip companies need to reinvest more, um, and they're but they're stuck with a 70% dividend payout ratio. And so, how do you how do you balance the two? Um, and so, you know, companies that that are giving this a lot of thought and, and approaching it in a in a rational way, you know, are are the ones that that I like to uh, uh, learn more about. Gotcha. All right. So finally, we're to the final uh, uh, circle in the Venn diagram, and that's price. Mm-hmm. So so, what do you look for here? So you know, before you know, I, I dig into a, a discounted cash flow model, which is what we use to value companies at, at Ensemble. Um, you know, I look for opportunities uh, that suggest that the, the stock is probably undervalued, um, and, and one of those things is you know it's an out of favor sector. Um, so if an individual sector is getting beat up, uh, there's a really good chance that there is a great business in there that's going to take share in the downturn, and those are the ones that I want to learn more about. Um, also, I look for underappreciated assets. So a lot of times like data sets or non-core operations that are the great businesses that the market's just not talking about. You know, like one of the things about, you know, the, the consensus chatter on the street is a lot of it's driven by sell-side analysts. Um, and so, uh, you know, sell-side analysts, I was one, um, and we're, we're super focused on 20 companies in a specific industry. And so you might find companies that, you know, might um, uh, have, like, like this one company I used to cover, you know, had 90% of its business was beverage cans, but 10% was aerospace. Mm. And so none of the none of the analysts on the call knew anything about aerospace. And so we all just slapped a multiple on it, right? Mm. We didn't really think about, you know, the ins and outs of that aerospace business. Um, whereas, uh, and, but that, that's a very valuable resource, very valuable asset. And so sometimes those type of assets, assets get overlooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, another thing is just market overreaction 
to a temporary headwind. Um, I just recently wrote about um, hyperbolic discounting, and it's just it's, it's a it's the math behind why when we stress out, um, our time horizons shrink. Um, just thinking about like you know that it, it was a perfectly natural reaction when you know our distant ancestors were were on the plains and and uh, and, and you know we were facing danger here and there and if you heard a sound in the in the woods you you know your time horizon shrunk you weren't thinking about getting dinner next week you were thinking about you know surviving right this minute mm-hmm. um and so we still do that our brains are still triggered to do that mm-hmm. and so thinking about um opportunities in which the market is just overreacting or or investors are overreacting um and and doing hyperbolic discounting can really open up some opportunities mm-hmm. and then and so you mentioned that you also that before you get into your your cash flow analysis, or, or there there's a model that you were going to offer here. Uh, did you want to get into that? Uh, just the discounted cash flow model. Yes. Yeah. So um, what we typically do is um, do a five year discounted cash flow model um, for the average company. Sometimes if it's um, if it's a company where something's going to be happening seven or ten years from now, we'll we'll add some years to that mm-hmm. forecast. Um, but we're really we spend a lot of time. Um, thinking about what the terminal year is going to look like. And that really dictates a huge amount of the value um, that you're, you're estimating. Um, it's something like, I think it's like 70 to 75% of mm-hmm. your value um, from a DCF comes from the terminal value. So this is where having a moat focus really helps because if you're confident in the company's ability to return roughly the same returns on invested capital for the next five or 10 years, that really helps you understand what a good terminal year starting point is. Um, but if you're just like, well, might be 6% ROIC, it might be 12. Well, that's pretty big range. And you're not really sure what the base rate should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we spent a lot of time um, doing um, uh, decay rates. So we, we use um, McKinsey valuation mm-hmm. and uh, talking about, you know, looking at, okay, if a company starts with this terminal va- or, or return on invested capital, at what, at what rate does the average company in that cohort decay over time? Um, so that really gives us a good foundation uh, for, from which we can you know, make changes if we need to. But at least we understand what the average company um, at, in that cohort has done over time. And that really helps us you know, stay logical about the process. Because, you know, because 75% of your value comes from terminal year, mm-hmm. you, can, you can garnish it, right? You can say, oh, well, maybe I'll just add another half a percent or then, you know, something to this, to this forecast. And that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, but it can get you the price that you want and that's not necessarily healthy to do. Gotcha. And, and thus, you know, bringing all of this together now, you know, what would you say are the optimal elements that then lead to a strong buy for you? I think it's when, you know, and this, this is a rare situation, you know, strong buy is rare situation. When you have management, moat, and price, um, you know the market is smart. Um, the market understands when it's got a great business in front of it. Um, you know, so really, it's 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 finding those opportunities where there's where you you think you understand the business very well, um, that you have found what you believe to be great managers and and a business that you believe has durable and lasting competitive advantages. Every so often you know, the market will throw you an opportunity um, and you have to be ready for that. And so that that's hard to do. Um, you know, for me, looking at the diagram 
you know, the things that are more frequent are the things that are around the strong buy. Mm -hmm. So looking at kind of traps, like quality at any price, um, avoiding turnaround traps and beware of quality traps. And um, I think Credit Suisse Holt did a study on um, different types of companies based on, I think it was quality, valuation, momentum, and growth. And they found that quality traps are actually the one of the one of the worst performing groups. And that's where you, you think you have a great business, um, but the market, the value, it's expensive, and the market, the momentum is is low. So it's it's telling you that the market sees something that um, you're you're not seeing or the market's not seeing, um, you know, in in the valuation that there's something decaying in the business and you have to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of asking myself those questions like, is something happening here where where I might be missing something important, um, or is the market wrong? And then those are the big questions. I mean, this is it's not easy and you're not always going to get it right. Um, it's a it's a very uh, uh, difficult profession in, in that, that situation. Well, you know, it's just, it's interesting that you, the, the, when you say that the strong buy is rare and because the market is smart and you're right. I mean, look, you're all dealing with the same information, you know, right. and, and, uh, you know, while there, you know, most firms or maybe some firms do, but, you know, some of them may have this, this Venn diagram, not yours specifically, but some similar form of it that has all their checklists and yeah. there's going to be a lot of overlap. You know, yep. so it's the, it's, it's just really finding that it's really having that edge where you can get in and your timing is earlier, you know, oh, that that's yeah. actually a good, good road to go down, you know, before my next question is, you know, how, how do you, how does timing then fit into all of this? Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, that's the, that's the tough part. You know, we, we've just been, um, you know, discussing uh, recently, you know, thinking about, trying to see situations in which things are not working out, but the market hasn't really caught on to yet. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I point to is internal corporate culture. Mm -hmm. And there will be times in a holding period for a company, if you're a long-term investor, where the only thing you might have to go on is your belief in the internal corporate culture. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I worked for the Motley Fool during the financial crisis Mm -hmm. and it was not, I mean, it was a tough time for everybody, um, in the market, but you know, I also witnessed firsthand what a great corporate culture can do in a downturn. Mm -hmm. Uh, Molly fool has a great corporate culture. Uh, we all banded together and fought through the financial crisis and came out stronger on the other end. And so, you know, if I was an outside investor, I'd say, you know, they're doing financial newsletters in a financial crisis, it's, it's a challenging business. Um, but you know, we, we stuck together. And so I think that, um, you know, having a good understanding of how the internal corporate culture works will help you not only stay strong during a downswing. Um, but if there's something that's starting to crack in the corporate culture, um, that's when you have mode erosion, that's when bad things start to happen um, at the company. You think about, you know, Kodak. Uh, people think, you know, the common perception is that Kodak was um, assaulted on all fronts by digital photography, um, and they were just slow to react. Uh, but that's only partially true. Kodak actually patented the digital photograph, um, and they just didn't market it because they didn't want to eat away 
at their cash flow mm. machine, their film business. So that was how the moat started to erode was from the inside. Mm. And so um, if you knew that, um, you know, you could have gotten out a lot earlier than maybe most of the market did. But it, so, yeah, go ahead. But, but is that a corporate culture erosion or is that just a bad business decision? Well, I think it's that that is indicative of a corporate culture, oh, okay. right? That it's like, you know, we want to focus on maximizing cash flow right now. And there's something I mean, in principle, nothing wrong with that, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what managers should do is maximize cash flow. But there's a trade off. And again, going back to the dividend issue with reinvesting, you know, how do we balance short term needs with long term durability? And if we're just trying to maximize short term cash flow, you know, so that the current group of CEOs or a C suite uh, can, you know, make as much money as they possibly can and then retire or move on in five years, well, that's a different business than one that's looking to, you know, build a, a long term. You know, and sees it as a legacy, long-term business, and sees it as legacy. Got it. And, and real quick, uh, are you or were you a shareholder in Kodak? I was not. Cool. So then, you know, to you, and and this might be difficult for you to answer. Well, maybe not. Probably not. But you know, what what would you say is the most important circle in your Venn diagram? You know, is, is it possible to name one? You know, I think you know uh, a great management team can't always do a great job with a business model that's broken down. Um, you know, we've seen that time and time again. And so I think it all starts with the moat. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to have a great business model. Um, and then from there, you look to management um, and then look to price. So that's how, I, how I, I would rank them. Moat first, management second, price third. Gotcha. So then, you know, while, while I, just like with Sean, you know, I, uh, while, while I know you don't focus on micro caps, I, I thought we'd have some fun here, you know, and yeah. do, do, you, do you think your Venn diagram would change at all if we were to look solely at this asset class? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, when I, you know, look at smaller cap stocks, it's, I don't, I don't change it. You know, one thing that um, I would say that you might need to do is probably give, um, maybe management a little more time to see things through. The moat might not be there just yet. Um, so kind of thinking about, okay, well, what is this company working to? What type of advantage is it working to towards? Is it, you know, trying to build a switching cost advantage? Is it trying to build um, a brand? What's it trying to build? And then tracking that over time somehow um, to see if they're if they're hitting on their objectives. Um, but you know, overall, I would say this this process works for all different sizes mm-hmm. um, of businesses. It's just maybe you know it might be a micro cap might be more in its infancy, may not have the capital resources or the, the employment resources. But mm-hmm. you know, I think um, you know culture is critical, management is critical, like you said, mm-hmm. um, and then trying to track how they're building the business over time. Well, do you think there might be potentially more strong buys? only because there's not as much uh, uh, institutional focus or institutions really looking at, at, let's say, sub-50 million market cap companies? Yeah, possibly. And I think that's a, that's a, a great advantage that individual investors have mm-hmm. over, over larger firms. I mean, we, our, our firm at, at last count, I believe, had 700 um, million in our equity strategy. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's very difficult to, to make a meaningful investment 
in a firm that's that's very small. Um, and so uh, that's an opportunity for small investors um, who can who can play that game. But you know, I've I've always said that the informed individual investor has a great advantage <laughs> in in the field. Um, you know, for that reason. And um, and so I think uh, you know there might be more opportunities there. Uh, but the question I'd, I would always ask myself is, okay, why is this company a forty million dollar company? <laughs> right. You know, right. <laughs> like, why if it's been around for thirty years and has a great moat and great management, why is it forty million dollars? Right. Um, and I think that's that's a question you always have to ask. Right. So you published this Venn diagram back in 2017. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I said that like that was so long ago, but it, it <laughs> seems like, like it. Seems like it. Um, so would you say, ha- has anything changed since you released this? Not too much. You know, um, somebody asked me that a couple months ago and, you know, two things I, I would change. Um, one would be to add kind of that we talked about the visionary and optimizer management, you know, not be so focused on one type of manager mm-hmm. um, that keep our mind open a bit. And the second thing is looking for idiosyncratic businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that are uh, companies that don't fit a perfect mold. And so you can find um, opportunities in those businesses uh, that you may not find elsewhere. And it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with uh, the beverage company, beverage can company that also had aerospace. You know, look at, um, you know, we own Ferrari in our, in our portfolio. And, you know, Ferrari is, you know, you, you could look at that as an auto company, mm-hmm. um, but it's really more of a luxury brand, right? And so the people, the sell side analysts who cover Ferrari, um, are either probably luxury or they're auto. Mm-hmm. Um, few of them are both. That's a very unique skill set. But that's what Ferrari is. It's a it's a blend of of uh, of luxury and auto. Um, so you really have to understand both dynamics, and that can be hard because on the sell side, a lot of times um, they like to just do regression analysis or you know, compare multiples and say, you know, Ford is trading for, you know, such and such book value. So Ferrari should be trading for just above that. And that's like not even, not even close to being true, right? It's a very different type of, of business model. Um, so I think finding those types of businesses where they, they don't fit, they're not a great comparable, um, you know, banks are a classic comparable, you know, it's a mostly a commodity business. You know, if you get money from one bank versus another, it's not a big deal. Um, but you know, and so a lot of a lot of um, uh, sell side analysts will just you know do a multiple of book value to compare um, to find undervalued and overvalued banks. Um, mm-hmm. But there's opportunities in, in that in that industry as well. Um, you know, for separation. So you know, idiosyncratic businesses is, is another thing that that I would add to my list that I don't really have on there. Gotcha. So now we're we're this is my my favorite question that I love to ask all my guests. On here, so you know, and I'll and I'll curtail it to the 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 um, your Venn diagram that you know, mm-hmm. and and hopefully there might be a story there that that might come out of this question. But you know, what what investing experience would you say shaped you wanting to put this Venn diagram together? Do you have one? You know, I think um, you know, I wrote I did this um, uh, Venn diagram like I said, two years ago and, you know, looking at, at it, you know, what informed most of it was my, my time at Morningstar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had been exposed to moats a little bit, um, at, before I joined, um, you know, I read Pat Dorsey's great book, um, to both books, 
um, uh, the five rules of successful investing, I think was one. And then the little book that, that, um, builds wealth, I think is everyone, um, could be wrong on, on both titles, but just look up Pat Dorsey on Amazon and his books are fantastic. And, you know, he, um, he, unfortunately was not at Morningstar when I was there, he had moved on since then, but, you know, I just learned so much from, from his approach and from, you know, the Morningstar approach that was, um, that was developed through Pat and, um, you know, uh, it just, uh, that, that really resonates with me. Um, and then on the management side, you know, I was lucky to be part, to, to be on the ground at Morningstar when we started developing the equity stewardship methodology. So again, this is looking at how well companies allocate capital. Um, mm-hmm. Are they thoughtful? Are they investing for the long term? Are their incentive packages lined up with shareholder value creation and so on? So, you know, this was, you know, a tremendous learning experience for me and um, really shaped my approach. And that all kind of came together with the, the Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. And then what advice do you have for new investors that are looking at the stock market? Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of advice. <laughs> I, would say, <laughs> I would say, you know, be patient. It, it's not it won't come to you right away. Um, be humble. You know, it's not, and, and to not get too down on yourself and don't get too excited when things go right. Um, you know, it, it's a humbling industry and you always need to keep that in mind. Um, but, you know, in terms of like learning, I would say don't stop reading. Just get all, all the books you possibly can. Um, you know, initially you'll find yourself reading the classics, you know, the Peter Lynch's, the Phil Fisher's, the Warren Buffett's. Then eventually you'll, you'll start, you know, reading um, maybe some blogs, some, some new people. Um, and then you'll find yourself not really reading any investing books at all, uh, reading more about business and more about, um, you know, trying to learn more and develop more mental models that you can apply to your investing over time. Um, so, you know, read and write. You know, that's my, my big thing, as we talked about earlier. There's no better way to accelerate your learning process than to read. I'm sorry to write. Um, you know, if you don't want to write publicly, I would advise you to track your your progress. Um, so keep score uh, was something that Molly Fold uh, co-founder David Gardner always talked about was mm-hmm. you know the importance of keeping score, track your progress. Um, you know, hold yourself accountable to mistakes and 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 learn from your wins. And um, so all those things together, uh, it's just like I said a couple times during this interview. Just you know, it's the best profession in the world um for me people like me you know just learning and learning um and uh and i, I you know would always encourage people to 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 learn about investing because it's a great way not just learn about you know how to manage your money but also think about business think about life mm-hmm. and go get those liberal arts degrees yeah, if, if yeah the, the liberal arts degrees are, are, are great for later on in your career um you know, i you know the one thing i would i would tell people um you know, if you are a liberal arts major and you're looking to get into the investing world um, to pursue the CFA designation um, and maybe take an accounting course, because that's really, really what you need to know. Mm-hmm. By the way, I love I loved your recent tweets that you said about the CFA test. I, I, I thought that was very inspiring. I, I, and you got a great partner on your hands. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, you know, I, I just to, to recap what I said, you know, I, uh, I, the CFA was a long journey for me. Um, I think I started it in 2007 and didn't finish till 2014. Mm. Um, so it was a long, I took a year off there, um, early on, but I had failed level one once and failed level two twice. Um, 
you know, just I really struggled with the accounting and the and the heavy math components of level one and level two. Um, got super frustrated with it. Um, and uh, after after I failed the second time, level two, my I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, like I was really I was really upset. Um, not it's not so much not so much for myself, but just like the people that sacrificed their time for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my wife and my boss and my coworkers, and just felt like I can't do this them anymore. You know, keep asking for all this time off. Um, and uh, but they all. You know, my wife, you know, the lead on that, uh, but also my coworkers just say, I'm like, no, you're going to go back you're going to finish it. And, um, so that was all, all very, um, you know, positive and, uh, and I'm, I'm glad they, they pushed me through it because, you know, level three happened to be more in line with how I, how I, how I work. So level three, fortunately passed one time. I didn't, you know, <laughs> didn't need to take it again. And so I, uh, and, 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 you know, there's, there's a lot to, to criticize about the CFA program. Um, but you know, for people like me, it's, uh, it was the ticket. So cool. Well, that we'll save that for another podcast. Sure. So, <laughs> so, you know, with, with that, Todd, where, where can my audience go and find more information about you, uh, intrinsic investing and ensemble capital? Yeah. Um, our, our blog is, uh, intrinsic all one word. And you can, you can read, um, you know, my writing and Sean's writing and ours writing, there and uh, we're on Twitter at intrinsic inv, and my personal handle uh, is at Todd Wenning on Twitter. Perfect. Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining me today. This was really awesome, and uh, I look forward to the next one. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Todd, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great weekend, everyone.